At Total Wine & More, find the best gifts for everyone on your list, whether it's a Cabernet for sis or a single-barrel bourbon that dad will love. With the lowest prices for over 30 years, you'll always find what you love and love what you find. Only at Total Wine & More. Spirits not sold in Virginia and North Carolina. Drink responsibly. Be 21. Where can you find the best gifts at great low prices that everyone will love? At Total Wine & More, of course, with so many great bottles to choose from. Find something for everyone on your list, whether it's a Cabernet for your sis, sparkling wine for a coworker, or a single barrel bourbon for dad. And if you need any help, just ask one of their friendly guides for advice. With the lowest prices for over 30 years, you'll always find what you love and love what you find. Only at Total Wine & More. Spirits not sold in Virginia and North Carolina. Drink responsibly, B21. Kristen McGlory, lifelong genius hunter. For almost a decade, I've been unearthing the recipes that have changed the way we cook. On the Genius Recipe Tapes, we're sharing the behind-the-scenes moments from talking with the geniuses themselves that we couldn't quite squeeze into the column or video. The extra genius tricks, the off-road riffs, and the personal stories that actually have nothing to do with the recipe that week. My guest this week is my longtime friend, Anita Shepard. You might remember Anita for her vegan chocolate cake with super fluffy frosting, which was the cover star of the Genius Desserts cookbook. Or you might know her as the founder of Anita's Yogurt, the first yogurt in the world to be fair trade certified, a company that she's been running for seven years on her own without investors. We talked about how all that's been going, while also homeschooling her daughter Ramona, and how her family's now almost totally veganized Thanksgiving will look this year. Hi, Anita. Hey, Kristen. It's so good to see your face. Yes, always good to see yours. I wanted to start with something that's top of mind for me, and I assume for a lot of people, uh, Thanksgiving, because you were recently telling me that you have basically veganized your family's whole Thanksgiving besides the turkey. So I would love to hear about that and how that's working for you and your family and also how it might be different this year. Yeah, so Thanksgiving is like the Super Bowl of holidays for my family. I have a huge family. Um, my mom is Colombian, and typically our Thanksgiving will consist of between 25 to 40 people. And everyone sleeps over. I have one cousin who is outdoorsy, and he will bring a tent for him and his partner and everyone else just has to kind of like grab a spot somewhere. So, and being that we are friends and we have been friends for a while, you have gotten to witness this firsthand. Mm -hmm. I remember you made one of your family's classic Thanksgiving dishes, which was the rumaki appetizer, mm -hmm. which my family of course went crazy for because they love meat and they love bacon. <laughs> and it, ba bacon is like part of the biggest part of the recipe, right? Yeah, it's, well, for my family, it was actually the first thing I learned how to cook when I was little because it's something that's easy enough for a little kid to be able to do because you just lay out bacon, smear some Dijon mustard and uh, brown sugar sprinkled over the top and roll up a water chestnut in each. And to this day, water chestnuts are like my favorite part of anything they show up in because of that recipe. I forgot that I made that for your family, but your family was so generous and like gave me a little corner with a cot while everyone else was like, <laughs> you know, I actually had my own room. You're so lucky. I was super lucky. I, I had my own room with a cot. That is like on yeah. of your own room. Wow. 
Well, I think they were just so grateful because appetizers are not a thing. Really? For us, like that was just so courteous and caring of you because the general attitude at my family Thanksgiving is get out of the kitchen. Don't put your fingers in any of the dishes. Like you have to starve yourself and then everyone sits down and like eats like there's no tomorrow. (laughs) It's actually like really unhealthy, but I know in the past there have been controversies about like people sneaking out to go to like the drive through at McDonald's or just something really <laughs> awful like that. But like it's expected that after breakfast, nobody eats a morsel until Thanksgiving dinner. It's like this weird, like sadistic thing that like my family's like come together to understand, like don't eat anything until we serve. But wait, so that... So that must put a lot of pressure on whoever is cooking yes. that like there's up to 40 people mm-hmm. waiting around mm-hmm. for all of the dishes to be ready at once ish. Yes. Like how how do you do that? And also mm-hmm. how have you been been veganizing things? Has it been a slow process of like I'm going to just do one dish and then the next year a few more or were you just like let me handle all of this? I think so the first year we did Thanksgiving that I was vegan, my poor mom, I think she bought a tofurkey or something. And was all excited about it. And I came home and I took one look at it. And I was like, no way. (laughs) And so then she was like, well, if you want something to eat, you have to make it. And then it kind of evolved to this point where it was like, oh, if we could get Anita to make everything. And the general attitude with my family is if it tastes good and if we don't have to make it, we'll go for it. I think... As a vegan, I don't feel that kind of compulsion that I have to have like a protein or a main dish because part of how I eat is having varied sources of protein. So it's not one main thing. You're getting it from a lot of little things. But in the name of like comfort and like giving people something exciting, I'll I'll try to sometimes have a vegan main dish. There was one year that my mom, um, I, something happened with the turkey and it got burned. Or like the outside got burned and the inside was still, I forget what happened, but the turkey kind of became a disaster. And that year I was making these like uh, mushroom parcels. I don't know if you remember this, but you remember when I had that like phyllo dough phase? Mm -hmm. And so it was around that time and I'd made these like mushroom phyllo pockets. And because the turkey burned... Everyone got like a phyllo pocket and that was the main. And I remember my mom was so happy because she's like, oh, you saved Thanksgiving. Um, (laughs) That's a little, that's going a little far. Like everyone's just hungry. But something like that, you know, that people can kind of cut into and it just feels really like meaty goes a long way. Mm -hmm. So my mom, when I was growing up, we grew, I grew up in Bethesda, Maryland, and we lived with my Colombian grandma, Grandma Anna. And she had a huge garden in her backyard. So we had vegetables. We actually even had an apple tree, a pear tree. We had a really small yard. You know, we lived in like suburbia. And, but from that small yard, she was, she, I remember she would go out there with a machete. She she brought her machete from Colombia. Because when you garden in Colombia, you're literally like whacking through like the forest. So she brought that machete and I remember growing up in the suburbs of Bethesda, Maryland and my grandma, my little Colombian dark-skinned grandma would go out in the backyard and just be swinging with her machete. 
but she was amazing. Like she was just like an alchemist. She could bring any plant back to life. You know, I've, it's taken me a lifetime to have like one tenth of the magic with plants that she did. And I studied plants, you know, but she was amazing. So, um, she lived with us and she was incredible. And I learned a lot of cooking from both of my grandmas, but definitely from her. So short story long, my mom never really got to that point of like being a big gardener, like my grandma, but she did always keep an herb garden. And the nice thing about the herbs is you can't really kill them. So at her house, she has a little herb garden with thyme and rosemary and oregano. And there's even like lemon balm. And the nice thing about Thanksgiving is most of those herbs are really hearty. So by the time Thanksgiving rolls around and most of the other stuff out there is dead, the herbs are still going strong. And so whether it's me or I send one of my little cousins out there, they love to go out there and pick stuff. They'll grab, you know, some of the rosemary, some of the oregano, some of the thyme. Uh, what else does she have out there? Whatever she's growing. Sometimes they grab things that I'm like, uh-uh, this is, I don't know what this is, but we're not putting it in the food. I have no idea where you got this. So I have to, I have to watch out for them. But the fresh herbs, I think, really add a lot, regardless of whether the dish is vegan or not. It's nice to have that. And um, if you if you don't have a garden, you know, like picking up a few bunches of herbs from the store and just kind of having them in the kitchen while you prep your your Thanksgiving, you can just grab like whatever feels right to you. That helps everyone feel that like Thanksgiving feel, you know, like we have like the pumpkin spice for the desserts that when you smell that you think of this season and you think of Thanksgiving. I think the same goes for those savory herbs that like if you're making a stuffing whether it's full of turkey uh, or Parmesan or whatever, or not, if you can have like a little bit of sage and a little bit of thyme in there and like the celery, everyone smells that and they think of Thanksgiving, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah, celery feels like an essential ingredient for stuffing. To me too, it was in my grandmother's stuffing. Yeah. Yeah, a bunch of yes. celery, a bunch yes. of chopped raw onion. Um, and then she used mm -hmm. something called poultry seasoning, which I think is basically just a lot mm -hmm. of of dried sage and some of those other herbs. It's actually vegan, poultry seasoning, and it's also delicious on popcorn, yes. Do you use that? Poultry seasoning on popcorn. The Trader Joe's has something called like, un, or it's called chickenless seasoning or something. And um, that's what we use on our popcorn. But like any poultry seasoning on popcorn, so good. That's so perfect because that's, the, those are the distinctive flavors of my grandmother's stuffing. And I look forward to them every year but I could be having them on popcorn too. Right. So much easier than cooking a turkey all day. <laughs> we, should, we should just end the podcast there. Like <laughs> just make a bowl of popcorn, <laughs> poultry seasoning, <laughs> make a cocktail done. That is 2020 Thanksgiving in a nutshell. <laughs> this is the genius recipe tapes. We'll be right back. You reach for the top olive oils and invest in the best pans. But in the kitchen, how well do you care for your greatest tool, your hands? When mine take a beating cooking and cleaning, which is often, I use Bag Bomb to work its wonders on my poor, distressed skin. Created 125 years ago on a Vermont dairy farm, their soaps smell great and clean hands without stripping moisture, and their fast-absorbing lotion means I can quickly get back to cooking. Treat your hard-working hands to Bag Bomb, every chef's best friend. Use code FOOD52 for 20% off your order on bagbomb.com. Good through 2024. 
You reach for the top olive oils and invest in the best pans. But in the kitchen, how well do you care for your greatest tool, your hands? When mine take a beating cooking and cleaning, which is often, I use Bag Bomb to work its wonders on my poor, distressed skin. Created 125 years ago on a Vermont dairy farm, their soaps smell great and clean hands without stripping moisture, and their fast-absorbing lotion means I can quickly get back to cooking. Treat your hardworking hands to Bag Bomb, every chef's best friend. Use code FOOD52 for 20% off your order on bagbomb.com. Good through 2024. How did your baking business turn into Anita's yogurt and how is it going now? Yes. So before I had my yogurt business, I was a baker. I had a baking business, which started out me baking muffins in my apartment and delivering them to local cafes in the morning. And it just kind of blossomed from there. The baking from home led to baking in a commercial kitchen, which led to baking in restaurants, being pastry chef in restaurants. And as the jobs got more sophisticated, the demands got more sophisticated. And I was at the point where I wanted to make desserts that are not often replicated in a vegan way because of the limitations of the ingredients. And I knew if I could find a good yogurt alternative, I could make, you know, the classic cheesecake recipe that I loved or the classic pound cake recipe that I loved. And there were just so many desserts that I wanted to make that I couldn't make without yogurt. And I, at the time, was searching high and low at a lot of the kind of like New York um, health food stores, like commodities on First Avenue kind of had everything new and exciting. And no matter where I went, I just couldn't find anything that worked as a yogurt alternative. And at the time, I was the pastry chef at a restaurant where Neil Hardin, who is the chef at ABCV, was the the executive chef. And he gave me a packet of yogurt cultures and said, you should try making your own. It's actually not that hard, which was a lie, but it's okay (laughs) because he got me started. So I took the cultures home and I started experimenting and it was really exciting to me because as you know, baking is really messy and it's really expensive and it's really complicated and you know, I would just destroy the kitchen and I needed so much equipment and I needed so many ingredients. And the first time I made yogurt, I remember I literally just took coconut milk and dumped it in a pan and warmed it up and added the cultures and left it in the kitchen. And the next day it had become something else and something so different from what I had started out from. And it was just so like mind boggling to me. I was like, where's the mess, you know, where's all of the complicated like processes and equipment and, and it just was like alchemy. So I kind of became obsessed with making yogurt. And, you know, once I started using it in the desserts, I had a need to make it over and over because I always needed yogurt to put in the dishes. So I had an excuse to keep tinkering around with the recipe and, and it did become an obsession. I played around with different brands of coconut milk. I I think in the beginning I had kind of toyed around with different kinds of non-dairy milk, but coconut is what I always came back to. So once 
I committed to that. It was about like different fat percentages and different manufacturers. And there's a million and one combinations of like time and temperature and every other variable you can think of. And then of course you throw, um, the fact that you're fermenting something, it can get, um, contaminated very easily into the equation. And all of a sudden you have all these other things to worry about. So, you know, it, it's just something you can play around with endlessly and mess up endlessly. And it, it just started there really. And although I was using it in the restaurant and people did enjoy the desserts, that felt like it was kind of going nowhere, you know, working as a vegan pastry chef in New York. I think there was only so far for me to go in terms of earning income and making a name for myself. And I had a lot of friends in food who were finding success in launching a product. And I just made this decision like, Anita, you have to commit to one thing and stick to that one thing and make yourself known for one product. And it's probably going to be this yogurt. And that's when I ditched the whole baking thing and just started to focus solely on the, on the yogurt. In the beginning, when I launched Anita's Yogurt in stores, I was still like guerrilla style making it at home in my own kitchen because I couldn't afford to use a commissary kitchen. So I would say for maybe like the first four or five months of my business, I was just the same way that I was kind of this like underground bakery. I was doing the same thing. And I honestly think if I hadn't done that, I never would have been able to launch my product. And seven years later, here we are. It's a huge category. I have a lot of competitors and the products now, they don't start that way anymore. These products now come from multi-million dollar companies. They come from startups that have millions of dollar in venture capital. And I honestly, there's no way I would be able to get my foot in the door if I was a competitor coming into the market now. I, I never would. Like I wouldn't want to enter a saturated category but it was it was a moment in time that has come and gone and things are so different now. And I just, to look back and think about starting my company that way to where I am today as a woman of color with a product in the case at Whole Foods where most of my competitors are these multi-million dollar companies, it just really blows my mind. You were the first. You showed everyone what yogurt could be if it didn't have anything but coconut and cultures in it. <laughs> yeah. At the time it was really unheard of. And I had spoken with a lot of experts in yogurt and in cultured dairy. And they all told me that what I was trying to do was not possible. They said, there's a standard way that it's done in non-dairy where you take sugar and you take some kind of base and then you add, you know, your thickening agent, you add your outside thickening agent. And these days it's in those days, it was like, you know, guar gum and stuff like that. But these days it's cassava slash tapioca slash maltodextrin or it's agar or it's pectin. Like there's different ways that people package it, but that's what they're using to thicken the product. And at the time I was really committed to this idea of if I'm going vegan to 
have something that is pure and I want that level of quality, I'm not going to replace a product that has two ingredients, which is cow's milk and live cultures, with a substitute that has five ingredients. I have watched you over all the years since you started your business keep fighting for that to not change, even as everything changed around you and continues to change around you you've never been really interested in compromising even a little bit. So you recently wrote a story for us on Food 52 about what it's been like since the pandemic hit and all the challenges that you've been thrown this year with running your business and the way people shop for groceries changing and also, of course, having to take care of and homeschool your daughter. So can you tell us a little bit about what's going on now with the business? Yes. So one of my big goals was really to try to connect with other working parents. And if they read it, to feel like they weren't alone and that there's a light at the end of the tunnel. Because I have to be honest, there were a lot of moments this past year where I was struggling to see a light at the end of the tunnel. And I I was just in such a deep hole financially. Our sales had been tanking. We were in the middle of the pandemic in New York. People couldn't really get to the store. And if you did go to the store, you had to wait in the cold in a line that snaked around the block. And in general, you know, it's just anytime you went out into the world, you had to face this hostility. You know, we had to keep our distance from each other. Everyone was was scared of each other and you would go to the store and there were so many rules. And I, you know, in the beginning, I look back, I think on in the story, I opened the story talking about, about getting off the plane without a mask. When I landed back in New York city in March, I was like, what's going on? You know, or is, are these people germaphobes, you know, like what, what's happening? And eventually it became clear that wearing a mask was an effective way to stop spreading the virus. But there was like a couple of weeks where I remember people were back and forth, like, are we supposed to wear a mask? Are we not? Are we supposed to wear gloves? But yeah, then when things really set in, I think um, in general, you know, we we had a little bit of a, a grocery spike right when everyone was kind of settling down to to like hunker down for the pandemic. And after that, everything kind of tanked and I've been running my business week to week, but fortunately through retail sales bouncing back through kind of getting the community to rally around local products, around small businesses, around entrepreneurs of color, and also launching e-commerce. Fortunately, you know, my business is back and things are are happening again and on the home side Ramona is back in school again so that has been like a saving grace for me without that program we we would still be in a tough place with me trying to juggle the schooling the childcare and the business at the same time you know um, that it was intense for most of the year, <laughs> to say the least. This was really great and um, so great to hear your voice. So great to hear your stories. Thank you. And I will talk to you very Thank soon. Thank you so much, Kristen. Thanks for listening. Our show was put together by Coral Lee, Emily Hanhan, and me, Kristen McGlory. What are you cooking this Thanksgiving? 
If you stumble on something genius, I would love to hear about it at genius at food52.com. If you like the genius recipe tapes, be sure to rate and review us. It really helps. See you next time. Oh, I thought of a better reality show analogy where you think you're going to like your wedding cake tasting, but you're actually going to your wedding. (laughs) You know, those horrible shows. (laughs) That's what this is.